In the spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples today. Welcome to Totally Lit, the podcast celebrating reading, writing and creating literature. I'm your host, Kai Garvey. Thank you for listening. This episode, I have the wonderful Fiona Lowe joining me and I was so excited to find out we had so much in common and a world of difference as well. Fiona Lowe has been a midwife, a sexual health counsellor and a family support worker, an ideal career for an author who writes novels about family and relationships. She spent her early years in Papua New Guinea where without television reading was the entertainment and it set up a lifelong love of books. One of her first teenage rebellions was refusing to go on a hike with her parents because she was halfway through Gone with the Wind. As an adult, Fiona read her way around the world, always trying to read a book that related to where she was at the time. The Brontes in Yorkshire, Jane Austen in Bath, The Godfather in Italy, Mishnah in Hawaii, and so the list goes on. Although she often rewrote the endings of books in her head, it was the birth of her first child that prompted her to write her first novel. A recipient of the prestigious USA Rita Award and the Australian Ruby Award, Fiona's books are set in small country towns and feature real people facing tough choices and explores how family ties impact on their decisions. When she's not writing stories, she's a distracted wife, mother of two ginger sons, a volunteer in her community, guardian of 80 rose bushes, slave to a cat and is often found collapsed on the couch with wine. I really enjoyed my chat with Fiona. I hope you enjoy it too. Fiona Lowe, welcome to Totally Lit. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that you're taking some time out of trivia tonight to spend with us. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I'm not quite sure what I'm getting myself into with this trivia. My son has said, oh, you, I'm, I'm staying with him tonight. He said, you're coming to trivia. And I went, oh, okay. Fingers crossed you win. I'm a mad trivia buff. We go every Tuesday night and we oh, one three or four weeks in a row. So I'm oh, well wondering if we'll get booted out. <laughs> well, he made a very rude comment that I wouldn't be missed for the first 10 minutes because oh. they always opened with music questions and I sucked at that. <laughs> you could always rely on the truth from your children. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I've been um, excited reading your bio because we have quite a bit in common. I also have two ginger sons. Ah, excellent um, taste. And my parents met in Papua New Guinea and my husband grew up in Papua New Guinea. So oh, crikey. Oh, look, yeah. we've got lots in common. Hopefully a best-selling book is in my future as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hope so. Um, and I did enjoy that you were travelling around the world reading books related to where you ever you were traveling so the Brontes in Yorkshire and Jane Austen in Bath um are you do you still do that I do still do that and my eldest son and is um overseas at the moment and he and his wife are doing exactly the same thing but they've taken it one step further and are listening to um uh, music that relates oh, to where they are and of course well. tech technology they can also watch movies back in the day I, you know books were about the only thing you could do so i just think it really adds to the whole experience if you can immerse yourself in um in the literature of the place that you're in amazing now you have a new book out at the moment the money club would you like to tell me a little bit about it 
I do. Yes, I would love to. Thank you. So, so the Money Club is it's a it's a novel set in a small town, and it's uh, it's about a group of people who join this um, investment. Uh, club uh, raced uh, based around horse racing, and uh, and life is looking really really good until one of the members goes missing. Oh, okay. And yeah, and money has has been um, starting to be dividends have started to be a lot less than they used to to be. So uh, so the book starts when someone doesn't come home and the police turn up and three members of the money club turn up looking for Brad. And it kind of goes from there. Um, so is that, I can see on your website it's considered women's fiction, but do you think it falls a bit under crime fiction as well? Well, it's uh, it's not, it's, there is a crime plot and a crime thread, but it's not, the, the focus of the book is about the um, relationships after the fallout of this um, Ponzi scheme. So I look at... Um, I look at community relationships and family relationships, and it focuses on three women and their and their relationships between themselves and with their with their partners. So the fact that the crime the crime drives the plot, but it's not like a crime novel. I think is the whole focus of the book is who did it. This is a little bit different from that. Oh, so it's, do you know who who does it before the ending? Before the ending, you do find you do find out before the ending, yeah, who who does it, yeah, that's um, right. There's lots of twists and turns. Don't want to give away any spoilers, but yeah, it's not. It's you're gonna it's, have to yeah. read the book. <laughs> you're gonna have to read the book. <laughs> and along the way, uh, so basically, I I specialize in taking everyday ordinary people. And in and putting them in unusual situations and blowing up their world, but but this book is actually um, the idea for this book came on the fact that I live in a regional town that's been hit by two of the worst Ponzi schemes in Australian history. Oh, made really? Melissa made Melissa Caddick look oh, yeah. like she she only she only stole 33 million or something but um one of our schemes took my town down for 89 million and caused a micro recession oh my goodness so that was um and i remember the trauma of that i mean i we weren't involved although the guy that went the, the guy that actually developed the scam uh once stood in our kitchen drinking our wine because that's the whole thing about a small town. You mm. come into contact with with lots of with people quite quite easily, and that's one of the reasons. And that's why I started thinking about. It. I think, well, why was my town hit by two huge Ponzi schemes? What what it was it about my town that made us susceptible? And one of the things is the size of the town and the fact that if you look at socioeconomic and um, educative. Um, factors you're only about three handshakes from anyone mm. and so when people are recommending you know you invest and you can see that they're making money because a ponzi scheme works that way it's it the latter investors money is used to pay the early investors dividends so it's quite a smokescreen and so the early investors do make money the latter investors lose everything and um so and it's a recommendation. People are earning, you know, might be the early investors are making money. So they say to their friends, look, you know, would you like to be part of this? Mm. I'm doing well. 
and it kind of goes from there. So that's set in a small town, and and as I said, this this um, scheme, we we meet the people before, and we see them with the good life, and then we see the fallout. So inspired by real life, did yes. you do much research on Ponzi schemes? outside of that experience oh yes heck yes oh yeah i did in fact the although that had happened in my town i hadn't it, it happened about oh i know it was in the late 2000s um and then there was another one about a decade later i hadn't actually thought about writing the book i think it was sitting there in my subconscious and then i heard an abc podcast about something else that had happened elsewhere and and two men were talking about their involvement and how you know they'd always been so cautious with their investment and you know it was but they had just wanted to help the kids buy a house and I started, and because I'm all about um, fam, my books are always about family ties and community ties. I started to think, ah, okay. Um, so, and all you have to do is type in Ponzi scheme, comma sixty minutes, and oh my goodness, there's Ponzi schemes that I've never heard of. There's there's a big one in Western Australia, and and they're happening everywhere. And of course, you know, I think Bernie Mailer was the huge one in America mm. a million years ago. But yeah, so I did do a research, and I had to learn a lot about horse racing. It's not my natural area, but fortunately, um, a neighbour of mine has um, shares in quite a few racehorses, and so she explained how syndicates work, and she also explained fashions on the field, and so, um, yeah, so that was a bit of fun. Yeah, I was about to say, oh, that sounds like a bit of fun, having um, not just investing, but also getting the fun of dressing up and going out. And yeah, that's right, and experiencing that whole, you know, luxury luxury lifestyle. And, and that's one of the reasons, uh, um, one of the themes of the book is um, what is need and what is greed mm. and, and who decides. So is it greedy to want to own your own home? Is it greedy to want to educate your children? Is it greedy to want to own a Lamborghini? And who decides and who draws that line? So um, I do show people, you know, changing their lifestyles and and enjoying the good times, and and then that all that all pulls in a whole whole lot of other jealousies of people within the community who were not benefit who weren't benefiting from this scheme. And so we love it. We love to cut down a tall poppy. So when things fall apart. Um, there were quite a few judgy people saying, well, you know, you deserved it, mm-hmm. things like that. And uh, because of the whole networking situation of how a Ponzi scheme works, because it's very dependent on a charismatic person yes. and and trust. And I loved, I, when I was researching stuff about trust and, of course, you know, ideally if we're healthy, you know, we develop trust in the first year of life. And most of us are healthy and most of us do have, have um, a relative level of trust of people and we, we, we don't approach people thinking that they're going to do us any harm. But the British psychoanalyst um, Adam Phillips says that trust is a risk masquerading as a promise. Mm. And I thought, okay. Um, so that was that was a driving part of the book is what makes, you know, people make the decisions that we do why do why do some people walk away and why do some people decide to take a leap of faith things like that it is amazing the gambles you will take when you're motivated 
to help someone else. Um, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And you know, the 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 promise was nothing super outrageous. It was, and I think we all seek financial security. All of us seek that, you know, at, at different different times of our life. I mean, that's what we want. We we want to have that stress removed from our shoulders so that we can, you know, breathe and and in and enjoy ourselves not so much as in you know the super extravagant lifestyles it's just can we pay our bills and have a bit over for a holiday that's what most people are planning for you know and of course when you when when a a trauma happens and whether that's losing all your money or you know your house being burnt down or whatever the um the emotions that follow that of having the rug pulled out from under your feet it's when you lose all your money is not dissimilar from a natural disaster and people are angry they're really angry at mm-hmm. the person who ripped them off but they're also really angry at themselves for having fallen for it and um i was listening to a radio interview the other day because i don't know about you but i get a scam a week at least on my phone oh i'm inundated with especially running a podcast i get all of these people going i can design your logo i can edit your podcast yeah. can you pay me this much money yes um, yeah. how can i help you grow your listenership and all sorts of things coming from mm. everywhere and some of mm. them are legit but then there's also the scammers the scammers. Out there as well. and that's right and so you're being you're being hit like you know the hi mum i lost my phone and you know the whole this is the ato and you know we're going to take you for everything you've got if you don't pay this all these scams pardon me anyway this psychologist was saying that um big that if if you do get caught up in a in a scam if you if you uh do fall for it um there's so much shame and embarrassment Mm-hmm. that comes with that, that less than 50% of people who, who are scammed admit to it yep. because they're so, so embarrassed. And she was saying, but really, there's you shouldn't be ashamed because you're dealing with narcissists and sociopaths who operate on a completely different... Their moral compass is just so off-skew that a person who has who trusts and has a good moral compass, we, we can't even comprehend how someone could behave like that. So it doesn't occur to us that they're not trying to be helpful or things like that. So, um, and not to feel bad because you're up against absolute experts. And then just yesterday on the ABC, there was an article about, um, these 11 money mules. So where they were taking money and it goes through up to 11 accounts and, and then it's out of the country. Boom. Wow. Yeah, and you can't get your money back. So I think that uh, although my money club is not technology based, uh, it's because it's it's racing based. But um, I think it does speak to the times, and that it's we are relevant, all battling yeah. to battling that we have to make make decisions, trying to live our best life, and trying to filter out what is safe for us and and what isn't. Well, I think there's, I'm paraphrasing here that there's that quote that says, "All men live lives of quiet desperation." Mm-hmm. Um, where we're just trying to get through our lives and pay our bills and make sure there's food on the table and keep exactly. the roof over our head. Um, and it is some people's lives, they never get a breather because they're just trying to break even with life. That's um, right. And when my, so if an opportunity my... comes where you think, oh, this might help me or well, might help right. my family, it's easy to get... Um, sucked in and when you're stressed you misjudge things <laughs> that's correct and also with with um you know as i said they the 
everyone in this small town they know each other and they they trust each other and when when a ponzi scheme fails as it inevitably inevitably does because that it runs out of money because it's dependent on people continuing to um invest um the media normally focuses on the extravagant lifestyle and you know because they normally have fleets of cars and luxury holidays mm-hmm. because they're siphoning off all the money for themselves and um but i didn't want to focus on that i wanted to focus on the everyday people mm-hmm. who were just trying to improve their lives and so it's written from the point of view of three women and um so we've got jack and lucy who are in their uh early 30s and they've got a whopping mortgage and he and a three-year-old and he's a fly-in fly-out engineer and she's a midwife and she works night duty when he's home and day shift when he's away and she's a sole parent two weeks out of four and they've committed to this life for they reckon you know five years and then they will have paid down the mortgage enough be able to afford to have another child and he'll be able to take a lesser paying job in in his in their town so it's that's not that's not an outrageous if they get an offer that 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 they can earn some more money that will help them with their mortgage. It's not an outrageous, you know, mm. thing to want, is it? And then, you know, we look at superannuation these days and a comfortable retirement and Bertie and Mike are wanting to retire. They're in their early 60s and um, and an opportunity comes up to, you know, maybe they can bring their bring it forward a few, mm. a couple of years, stuff like that. So I was just looking at what we would think are perfectly normal um, aspirations, nothing mm. nothing outrageous, although they did all have fun living the high life for a while. <laughs> they enjoyed it, <laughs> kicking their heels up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Ken, I just want to take you back to the beginning of your writing career. What made you write your first book or what made you sit down and start your first book? Uh, so um, I had an awful lot of trouble um uh, conceiving so after seven years in the infertility wilderness and i finally had a child i was um and i had was working in community health so um when i was at home with the baby and i was you know going to have to be thinking about going back to work and i happened to hear a radio interview and i'd gone to a lot of trouble to have this child and i was you know really wanting a job that maybe worked around the kid mm-hmm. and i heard a radio interview about from publishers saying you know we we read all the manuscripts that we get and and i had this you know so-called brilliant idea that that's what i do i write a book <laughs> i knew nothing i knew and absolutely you did nothing <laughs> well i did but it took um four it took four manuscripts over a pe- elapsed time of 10 years because we we changed countries and i'd had another child and and uh, and as I went through and I learnt, you know, and I did work writing workshops and things like that, um, I'd never failed at anything that I'd set my mind to. And yet this getting published was proving to be harder than all my mm. postgraduate studies. And I'm anything if not determined. And and it auto, it really came down to it was not going to defeat me. <laughs> And so I, I finally got over the line um, 10 years after, yeah, he was in grade four. He was 10. So, um, and then I was a bit shocked when they expected me to write another book. <laughs> <laughs> and it went from there and I've reinvented myself. I started off writing straight romance fiction mm-hmm. and um, I've reinvented myself a couple of times. Once it was out of choice and once it was forced upon me when um, – 
Penguin Random House America merged and I lost my editor and they didn't get the second book of a series out of the warehouse and then they said you didn't sell very many books and and that was in um, 2015 and that was when uh, yeah and we'd lived in America and um, I mean they speak English but you know the language as you know just from watching television is quite different Mm -hmm. and so that was an added stress just getting the language all correct and I just said in 2015 when it all fell apart from that perspective and not getting another contract I said I think I want to write a book in um in my own back garden I just want to write a book set in Victoria mm-hmm. and um I don't want to write a, a, a straight romance I want to have a cast of characters and I you know some people have a happy ending and some people won't and I want to write more of a general fiction book but that said what I learned writing romance fiction um, was how to write emotion and so that was a fabulous apprenticeship for these for these bigger books and I am known for you know writing quite deeply emotional characters if you take a, um, a walk in my character's shoes you will experience all the full gamut of emotions so um, yeah and I haven't looked back I've been very fortunate published by HarperCollins since um, 2016 and The Money Club's my um, seventh um, general fiction novel. Oh, amazing. And how do you feel now that you're writing what you want to write? Are you, are you feeling a bit freer? Well, no, it wasn't that I didn't want to write the romance fiction. I started I started off doing that. Yep. But I, and when, as I said, when they said, you know, write another book, it was like, um, write the second book. It was like, oh, goodness, could I, could I do that? And over time, because um, if you had said to me when I first got published that I would be writing you know, a larger and um, book and a, and a different style of book. I would have laughed at you, but along the along the journey, you develop writing muscles, and I just they wanted to flex in a different direction. Mm. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was a really good apprenticeship. Um, I, I'm not sure that I could have written the books that I write now if I hadn't have written the mm. little medical, the smaller medical romances. I think it, yeah, you grow and change over time as well yeah. as you mature through your life. Um, Absolutely. And as, you know, you tend to, like, you write, you know, people say write what you know. And well, I'm writing contemporary fiction. So I'm writing books about the social issues of the day of which I'm pretty passionate about. So, um, and you do change. And it depends what phase phase in your life. I mean, my that, that baby that was born has just got married. So, um, you know, uh, I'm, I've just become a mother-in-law. Goodness, how did that happen? And so that's, and so that's a, and that's another part of the life. And and people say, because, um, what Birdie, one of the characters in the book is, is a mother-in-law and has a difficult relationship with her daughter-in-law. And people are saying, Oh, is that you? And I'm going, No, I have a pretty good relationship with my daughter-in-law. Well, at least I think I do from my perspective. But anyway, um, so, but, just but it's, it's just those experiences. Yeah, that's right. You know, and when I was struggling with infertility, probably I, well, actually next year's book does have a big, um, it, it's called The Accident. It's a working title, but, and it's a, the impact of an accident in a town and especially on the lives of, of two women. And I've delved into the whole motherhood issue. And, you know, women are damned if they do and damned if they don't, mm. you know, um, it, if they, I've got one woman who's desperate to have a child, and one woman who doesn't want to have children, and for women who don't want to have children, society is not very forgiving of them. 
So I've delved so into all that. Of why, like, it's always, as, as soon as you hear somebody doesn't want to have a child, it's like, well, why? I know. Why not? And then people, and then people, and then people take it as a personal insult that, 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 that you're judging their mm. decision. And the other thing is that, um, for the, for the women who have chosen to have children, oh my goodness, their parenting is constantly judged. Mm. So I've that's I've explored, which is the current social issue, and I've been quite fascinated. My previous books I've I've written about um, homelessness. I've written about the rise in alcoholism with women, especially post during COVID. We started drinking way too much. Um, so um, I've looked at toxic female friendship. So yeah, issues oh, issues of, issues of the social issues of the day mm. feature in my book with with women. And when families that you know you would recognise someone in your family or someone down the street, yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, that's where I and I've always been interested. And my background in community health. I mean, I worked with families through from the uber rich through to the homeless. So you know, I've met a lot of people, and I didn't realise at the time when I was doing this job, which I loved, that it would actually be a great. Um, grist for novels mm. it's a human experience isn't it it is yeah. absolutely yeah so now i have a few questions for you sure. Fiona, just so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit mm -hmm. um what was your favorite book growing up well i think the one you know you have lots and lots of um, and i'm not a favorites person so um i would say that the books that stuck with me would have been the anne of green gables series mm -hmm. And my mother handed me at 15, we were camping and we'd run out of books to read from the library. My mother handed me her prized leather-bound school copy edition of um, Pride and Prejudice. Oh. And I started reading it and I was 15 and I'm like, oh, this book is so boring. And my mother said, keep reading. And then I was like, oh, that horrible Mr. Darcy. And she said, keep reading. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Mr. Darcy. And I still remember. I still remember the ending of that book and that rush and that happiness that came as that big sigh. So, and, and it was probably, it, it's to do with age and hormones, but yeah, that, that Pride and Prejudice still remains and I, I, I read it once a year. Love that book. Now, if you could be any book character, who would it be? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. At all. I'm not very good at these sorts of questions. I My mind goes blank. I'm not a favourites person. I read a book. I enjoy the book. I move on. So I this... suppose I could say that, you know, I would be, although it's interesting, well, maybe I'd be Elizabeth Bennet. And I always remember I would go to beautiful houses and mm. old houses and, and I'd say, oh, I could imagine waltzing around in the ballroom. My mother would say, oh, you probably would have been the scullery maid. <laughs> you just got put in your place right there. <laughs> oh, I did. I just wanted the pretty frocks. Um, this question might be a bit easier then. Um, what, okay. are you read what are you reading right now? Right now I'm reading um, the, the Nurses' War by Anthea Hodgson. I think oh, I've heard that's the, good. I haven't read yeah. that yet. And I met Anthea in um, Western Australia last year and she told me a little bit about the book and I went, I know this story because it's based on um, historical fact. And when I was a student nurse, I used to cross a courtyard every day to go to work and um, I went past a sundial 
and mm-hmm. this was a memorial to the nurses that had died in in this particular ship that had been um, torpedoed oh, wow. by the Japanese. And so I knew about some of the char- the, the people she was talking about because it, it's a real life thing. But I've only just started it. Um, I've been on book tour this week, so I've been a little bit busy. But I'm really looking forward to to getting into it. I'm not a huge historical fiction reader, but um, I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, so this one might be a bit tricky. If you mm-hmm. could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Oh, dear me. <gasps> okay. Um, well, I'd have to have Jane Austen because I absolutely I absolutely um, adore her sense of humour. Um, I don't understand. I, I've always found the Bronte books to be quite miserable, so maybe I'd, I'd get the Brontes to invite me to dinner to, to where they used to live and see whether whether living on the Yorkshire Moors was what influenced them. Maybe you'll feel miserable too. Oh, that's right, exactly. Um, oh, goodness. Who else? Oh, I'm, I fail at this. I'm sorry. Without any warning, my brain just goes completely empty. And I, as I said, I'm not a favourites person. And so um, it just doesn't stick. Sorry. All right, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll move on to what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the beginning of your writing journey? Well, um, that was to to have read far more romance novels than I ever had. Like, why would I think that I could just sit down and write a romance novel when I'd read one? <laughs> Honestly. And when I have met, um, you know, when you hear other authors' stories, a lot of people, women who were writing romance fiction, you know, they can tell you that they found their grandmother's stash of books and they started reading them from 12 or there was one person who had been laid up in bed pregnant um, and, you know, for like seven months and so she read a book a day and so she truly understood the genre. I had no idea what I was doing. So, um, and I often say to people, you wouldn't expect to, um, you know, become a plumber or an electrician without having done an apprenticeship and yet we seem to think that anyone can write a book. Mm, and so, um, no, that's right. And so it would have been, well, at least know how to format a document, Fiona. I mean, I think I set my first book off single space. I mean, I really, <laughs> it's remarkable that I ended up getting published. But, but the, but the reason I got published was I took on board criticism. I, did do some I did writing workshops and things like that, and and I learnt that you couldn't be precious. You know, yep. you do have to let words go, and you do have to take on advice. But you don't. If someone is telling you something that feels absolutely wrong in your gut, you don't need to take on that advice. You need to filter it. Filter it. Mm. It is tricky because everybody has an opinion on something, but and it's not necessarily what you want to do with your work. Um, that's exactly right, and they, 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 people say, oh, you do this, and I think, you know, that takes it off in a completely different direction, and that is not my story. And um, reading, reading is very subjective, so, you know, what I like to read, other people won't. I can't read thrillers, uh, psychological thrillers, anything with that sort of really high-grade tension. I just get chest pain and scared, so, oh, no. um, you know, I can't, I can't do that, but... Um, and I'm not a huge science fi- – I don't understand the joy of the science fiction. You know, I love a character-driven novel. So we're all different, and, and I think it's just important that we respect that, we respect that difference. 
Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate oh, that welcome. you've been around touring with the book and you're yeah. also having a bit of trivia tonight. Tonight. And um, I'm terribly sorry that I just can't ever think of whoever I want to have to dinner dinner with. Right. Um, but you know, you are an author who knows other authors. You could just have your friends out around for dinner. Oh, well, that's very true too. <laughs> I sort of always think you need, you know, you're going back in time and I need to have, you know, um, uh, influential people and but never mind that's okay there, there are some people I'd like to have for dinner because I want to ask them things um, yes. like I want to I really want to have dinner with Agatha Christie because there's things I oh do you okay um, yeah I'm a big fan of her just in general I love that she had crisis in her life but then she rallied and then she married an archaeologist and yes. I was just like yes that's girl power yeah, right there. that's absolutely I think I've read one Agatha Christie in my life and that was and they've changed the title now because it wasn't oh yes. yes I think it's now called and then there were none yeah yeah, and so I actually a... saw that on stage recently in an amateur production. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah, so I would like to chat to her. I think she'd be very interesting. Oh, and who um, else would you like for dinner? You tell me. This will be more interesting. Who else would I have for dinner? Um, I would Sweetheart. like um, Sylvia Plath. Ah, like yes. Yeah. Um, who else? Probably um, Virginia Jane Wolf. Austen I as could well. probably have Virginia Woolf. Yeah, I think she'd be interesting to talk yeah. to as well. Oh, I tell you what. See, this is the see, asking me cold. Night. Asking me cold. I can't think. But now we're chatting. Ruth Park. Oh yes, I, I love Ruth Park. Ruth Park, and you, you know, Ruth Park was married to Darcy Nyland, and she, um, and he was, you know, he won, oh, he won a, a prize, and he was the fated author of the day in the fifties. And Ruth, they had four children, and Ruth Park wrote all her novels on the kitchen table, and she wrote the scripts to The Muddle-Headed Wombat while she was supervising homework and peeling the beans, and he got the office, and she actually ended up more successful than him, and it was quite a stress. <laughs> and and I often think, and I wrote with Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, and I've always been really fortunate, but Ruth Parks was a fascinating and such a strong woman, mm-hmm. and yeah, and she did it all on the kitchen table. I actually have a room of my own for the first time. Excellent. Um, we've just moved into a new house and my husband has set up my office for me. That's wonderful. Um, and so the first time I've got a space to write and to work. And, to and you do things. you do need that. And um, you didn't ask me this question, but I'll volunteer anyway. There would never be a Spotify list to any of my books because I need to write in complete silence. No, I silence. write with noise-cancelling headphones, not music. <laughs> I've been the way I I write wherever I am. So I have written a manuscript in the Carindale Library. Ah, I've well, written on the in front of the couch watching TV. <laughs> well, you're much better at me. At, at, at I I could not write in um, cafes because I would just end up tuning into other people's conversations because um, I'm an inveterate people watcher, and so they would take precedence over the manuscript. So I need to be in my office at my desk with the everything set up correctly so I don't get tennis elbow and sore backs and stuff like yes. that and so I'm not distracted because gosh writing is such hard work and when a scene's not working it's you know anything else I would do anything else <laughs> be happily distracted by that makes anything. me feel I love to hear people that are a bit 
procrastinators. I love yes. that because I'm a terrible procrastinator. And then when I hear people have successfully written books, I'm like, oh, there's still hope for me. Yeah. And I find that, you know, the time, it's, it's when I don't know, it's normally when I have not, um, it's not clear in my head what the goal of a scene is or where I'm going or what I'm trying to do. That's the day I go off looking and raid the um, uh, cooking chocolate stash and, 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 you know, decide that today's the day you definitely need to dust, you know, which I would never <laughs> probably do. But, but, if you, but if you know what you're doing, then the scene and the scene's flowing, then it's pleasurable to be there. But it's, it's those hard harder scenes where you're really not quite certain or your motivation isn't sure enough you know that that they're the hard ones and do you have a technique if you have a day like that where you can't push through is there any trick well i i think sometimes i jump in and think oh you know i know what i'm doing and then i'm not so um i find that uh pen and paper is really good write down you know what's the goal what am i actually trying to achieve and there's something about physically writing it scrawling it across with pen and paper that releases things other things is having a shower mm-hmm. sometimes it's stepping away from the desk you'll find in, uh, there's something about running water i often get really great ideas in the shower the family used to be dashing out saying don't talk to me don't say anything i've got to write it down and just going for a walk often just removing yourself mm. yeah but pen and paper i find and i i when i'm trying to find book ideas or i'm writing up you know, what the next book might be about and the themes and things. I always do it with pen and paper and then I type it up to send it to my publisher to start a discussion. But, yeah, I would never write a novel by hand. I would not do that. My novels are, you know, 500 pages. But but there is something about writing that releases things. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I no, appreciate the chat. I'll let you go... And hopefully, fingers crossed, your t- trivia team wins. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I've enjoyed for the, the opportunity. chat. Take thank care. Thank you so much. Totally Lit is an independent podcast. You can help support us to continue to chat with wonderful Australian creatives by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our socials with your friends. You can also make a contribution at www.buymeacoffee.com backslash totally lit. This will also help with equipment and podcasting platform fees. I love to interact with my listeners, so feel free to say hello either by email or social media. I've also recently created a group on Facebook called Totally Lit Writing Community. It's a space to continue the conversation and share your writing successes, events, launches and latest projects. Jump into the group and say hello. Thank you for listening to Totally Lit and don't forget to go out into the world to read, write, create, ignite.